Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of All Swell, a student-led podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network in partnership with the Coastal Society. I'm Catherine. I'm Rory. And I'm Nat, and we're your All's Well Duke hosts. Hey Nat and Rory, it's so great to be meeting with y'all again. Tell me what's going on. What classes are you taking this semester? How are your master's projects going? Yeah, I've had um, a good semester so far. I'm getting used to back being back here in uh, Durham after a semester um, at the Marine Lab in Beaufort, North Carolina. But it's good. I'm in a class called Wildlife Surveys, where we get to go out and do different survey techniques on all sorts of different taxas of animals. So we've been doing amphibians, so frogs and salamanders, some stuff with mammals. And we're just starting um, a couple weeks on birds, which I'm very excited about. I'm looking forward to that. That's super cool. So classes are going well. Um, I'm currently in two independent studies, um, both on archaeology. Um, I'm doing a lot of zoo archaeology work with UNC and um, the Office of State Archaeology in Raleigh. Um, And it's basically just sorting through bones and identifying what animal those bones um, are from. And most of them are 500 years um, old, which is pretty cool. Um, I recently went to the Smithsonian um, to do some work in their museum support center um, at the whale warehouse (laughs) is what they call it. Um, And we had to sort through about, I think it was about 6,000 labels and put them in the courting uh, specimen drawers. Um, but yeah, that was really cool. I stood next to a blue whale skull, which was daunting. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. That's awesome. <laughs> that's super cool, Rory. And I saw the picture of you next to the blue whale skull. It was pretty fantastic. Um, speaking of whale bones. Um, A little update for our listeners. The Duke team, the current Duke team's first podcast with Keith Rittmaster from Bonehenge, a little throwback. So if you'll remember, Keith told us about Bonehenge, and we also let our listeners know that the Duke Marine Lab would be receiving a goose-beaked whale skeleton that Bonehenge prepared. And it was finally installed at the Duke Marine Lab a few weeks ago. Um, And it's really fantastic. And there's already been some great conversations um, with students and faculty and staff um, about the whale skeleton and also creative ways that we might think about the skeleton. So that's been really fun um, thing that I've been a part of this semester. That's awesome. I was just thinking about Bonehenge the other day uh, when I was at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, and they have a bunch of whale skeletons up as well, including some I think a blue whale and a North Atlantic right whale, which was just really cool to see. I'm in some manatees as well. So yeah, it's, it's really cool to see all the different kind of museum resources that are around um, with kind of cetacean work. That's super awesome. I still haven't been to that museum, but I really want to get there. Okay, guys. Well, it's so good to hear from you. I'm glad that we're all together. And today we have a really awesome guest with us. I'm so excited to introduce Hillary Stevens. She is the Coastal Resilience Manager at Restore America's Estuaries. She oversees the Blue Carbon and Living Shorelines programs. 
She's a geologist and environmental scientist with extensive experience in coastal resource management. Hillary has worked on coastal issues and climate change adaptation around the U.S. and globally, with an emphasis on using best available science to address community needs and improve resource management. She has a particular affinity for island communities, stemming from her time working in Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands, and as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Philippines. She holds a master's from Yale University and a BS from Wesleyan University. Thanks so much for talking with us, Hillary. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really a pleasure. I'm super excited to hear about your experience, especially because it's related to some of my own career interests. Um, so first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the teams that you're working on. So I stole your bio from the RIE website, um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the Living Shorelines program. Um, if you could tell us about some of the major projects and how you're involved. Certainly. Um, I think it would be helpful to back up a little bit and talk about my organization. We're called Restore America's Estuaries, which doesn't really roll off the tongue, so we just call it Ray for short. Um, as an organization, we exist to serve other organizations. So we we don't really have individuals as members. We have organizations that are working in coastal regions around the country, and we, we support them through events and grants and representing them in Washington, D.C. Living shorelines have been a topic of interest in the field for many years. Uh, as an organization, we realized that folks were working on the ground on living shorelines and running into a variety of different challenges. And these folks weren't necessarily very connected with each other and, and really needed an opportunity to learn from each other's experiences. Also, the permitting and regulatory environments are very different from one state to another, which meant there was another opportunity fair for folks to learn from each other. So we started developing a community of practice. That is bringing folks together, whether that is on a conference call, um, through regional workshops and uh, other events where folks can just get together and, and have an opportunity to say, hey, I'm trying this thing and it's not working very well. Has anybody else done this? What worked for you? And really make it a place where people can talk about the things that aren't going well, as well as the successes that they've had, and to really learn from each other. So over the years, that manifested in different ways. Um, currently, I am uh, in the initial planning stages of a tech transfer workshop that will be happening in Galveston this coming October. So we are developing the agenda, looking at topics that'll be of interest. And um, so this is an opportunity for our partners in the Houston area to both to show off the projects that they have uh, started and, and are working on that are successful, as well as what are the challenges that they're facing along the Gulf Coast, maybe in the state of Texas, or what the region being so prone to hurricanes, uh, what how that affects how they design sites and what kind of factors they need to take into account. Folks will be coming from all over the country for this event, and so they each bring their own perspectives, their own local regulatory environment, their own um, wave and climate environment, climate, whatever they're they're particularly dealing with. And so it always becomes a very lively discussion. So that's the big thing that I'm working on right now in the Living Shorelines program. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm especially interested in the Living Shorelines program because my master's project is actually about living shorelines, primarily in North Carolina. 
Um, last summer, I did an internship with a local nonprofit called the North Carolina Coastal Federation, which is a really instrumental player in getting living shorelines onto people's properties here in coastal North Carolina. So I think it's pretty awesome that Ray can work with so many different stakeholders to like streamline that process, because I imagine it's very hard, especially across states. Yes, I'm thrilled to hear you're working with the Coastal Fed. They are one of our member groups, and absolutely, they have an enormous amount of expertise in this area. They've been working with a number of different private groups, getting contractors on board with what kind of methods are going to work well, and uh, have really had a lot of success working in North Carolina. So that's a, a fantastic connection you've got there, and I'm really glad to hear it's been a good part of your your studies and your master's program. Um, we actually hosted the uh, workshop there in North Carolina four years ago, I believe it was. Yeah, that was before the pandemic. So that would be four years ago. Uh, and it was a huge success. They, they really had a lot to offer the folks that were coming in from other states to, to see what's worked so well there. Awesome. And, you know, we've been talking about living shorelines, but I'm not actually sure that our listeners know what living shorelines are. So would you be able to tell us what a living shoreline is and why it's important? Sure, absolutely. Uh, living shorelines are loosely defined as a way of stabilizing the shoreline using natural materials and mimicking natural processes. So many areas are prone to erosion and sea level rise and other challenges that can threaten private property, they can threaten development, they can threaten uh, any kind of asset that is behind the shoreline. And in these cases, uh, the landowners are looking for ways to minimize that erosion and stabilize the shoreline. Traditionally, this has been done with a lot of concrete. That could be a bulkhead or a seawall or using large, very large like boulders um, or broken up concrete as a way of trying to minimize the wave energy that's hitting the shoreline. And we have realized that when you put in that amount of concrete, you're trying to fight the wave energy and the natural process is there, but you've really ruined any kind of habitat value in that intertidal zone. So we are looking for ways to protect the assets that are behind the shoreline and minimize the damage by erosion and storm surge while still maintaining some of the natural systems and the habitat functions that we need in that shoreline. That's a pretty wide open definition and there's a recognition that there are a lot of different needs we need to address here and there's a range of options we can utilize. So at the most gray, as we say, which is referring to the gray of concrete, would be a seawall. And at the far end, the most green being the most natural system um, would have no hard stabilization there. Many cases, we need something in the middle. We need something that is a bit more stabilized, but hopefully we can also include natural materials along with um, whatever kind of uh, engineered stabilization is needed to promote some habitat value. That can look like a lot of different things depending on the site. And one of the things that, about living shorelines that makes them wonderful, but also 
sometimes expensive and challenging is that every site is unique and we really need to pay a lot of attention to the wave environment, what types of uh, flora and fauna would naturally be existing there, uh, what kind of storm environment they might be located in to make sure that the living shoreline is designed in a way that it will be able to endure. Um, the hope is that a living shoreline will be less expensive and less intensive to maintain than a seawall. The idea being that a seawall is at its best condition the day you finish building it. And from there, it's only going to degrade. Whereas a living shoreline, because it includes flora and fauna and natural processes, will to some extent be able to uh, maintain itself and to persist in the face of sea level rise. Thank you for that super comprehensive definition. Um, some of the things that you were getting at that I was thinking about um, are that living shorelines can be so many things, that there is this spectrum from green to gray infrastructure. And one of the things that I'm touching on in my master's project from feedback of faculty and professional or um, practitioners is that, you know, living shorelines, especially in legislation and in um publications can be kind of poorly defined, um, which can sometimes make them hard to implement or hard to advocate for. So that's something that um, I'm trying to address in my master's project. Also the notion that they are more cost effective over time, as you mentioned, as opposed to hardened structures like bulkheads. I think that's something that's really important that can help us advocate for using living shorelines. Absolutely. I think we need to recognize that we are in a time when things like rainfall and wave environments and storm regimes are changing and we need to be adaptable. We need to design our built environment to be adaptable to these changing circumstances. And a more natural design for a shoreline is one that will be able to handle or handle better than a concrete wall, whatever types of hurricanes or changes in rainfall and drainage that might have an impact on how that system is weathering in the future. So we need to design these things with some adaptability and some flexibility in mind. Great point. And I'm just thinking about if there's any listeners out there who are maybe estuarine shoreline property owners. So if there are, and they're interested in living shorelines, what do you recommend to them if they're interested? How can they contact someone in their state to learn more? That's a great question because uh, frequently people are sort of interested but don't know where to get information. And in some parts of the country, contractors are not very well aware of or not very interested in this type of system. We have a couple of online resources. I can refer people to the livingshorelinesacademy.org or the restoreyourcoast.org, which are two online resources we have where people can get, they can learn about living shorelines, they can get uh, lots of photographs and examples, and some regionally specific advice about what type of design or system might be appropriate for their local area. 
There are um, lots of different agencies and players involved depending on where someone is located. As you said, for example, the North Carolina Coastal Fed is a wealth of knowledge, um, but they are specific to North Carolina. So in some extents, it really depends on where they are, um, what kind of resources they're going to have access to. But uh, certainly folks are welcome to contact me at estuaries.org um, or those two resources, as I said, Living Shorelines Academy or Restore Your Coast. It's really interesting, Hillary, to hear about all of the work with um, Living Shorelines. It sounds like another big piece of your work is on your Blue Carbon Program. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about... Um, kind of what Ray is doing with Blue Carbon, and maybe just for our listeners, um, a quick intro to what is Blue Carbon. Sure, absolutely. Blue Carbon has been a very hot topic in the last couple of years, so it is taking up an increasing amount of my attention. Um, the term coastal blue carbon refers to the greenhouse gases that are taken up and sequestered by, stored in, and emitted by coastal wetlands, so tidal ecosystems. These can include salt marshes, mangroves, and seagrass beds. This process of carbon being stored in these systems can be a great mitigating impact on climate change. And certainly the fact that these systems are currently storing carbon that they took up in the past makes them especially valuable to us that we not damage or degrade them and allow that carbon to be re-released into the atmosphere. This is um, a recognition that coastal wetland systems store a lot of carbon and continue to sequester carbon really came to light around 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. And, and Ray has been working in this space ever since then as we recognize this as, as really just one more reason that coastal ecosystems are important and we need to protect them and restore them. It has since become part of the voluntary carbon markets, which um, that's kind of a whole other podcast to get into. Um, but there are methodologies on the books to bring tidal wetland systems into the voluntary carbon markets. And Ray was involved in developing those. So we are working in this space in a lot of different ways. We are working on the research to better understand this process. We are supporting pilot projects that might make it into the carbon markets. We are supporting um, education programs for lawmakers to make sure that policies in this space um, are really promoting the protection and restoration of these ecosystems, as well as promoting their inclusion in the carbon markets. Um, and again, we're doing a lot of work to just convene the community of practice, to get the folks that are working in this space around the country to come together and align their priorities and talk about research needs, policy needs, um, and to uh, give them a space to network and talk about the issues that they're dealing with. So um, I have a lot of different programs uh, in Blue Carbon and, and quite honestly, a lot of what I do is actually talking about Blue Carbon to lots of different folks. I get invited to talk about this to um, landscape architects and land conservation professionals and lots of different groups that are sort of working adjacent to us in the conservation field um, to help them understand what blue carbon is and, and why it's important. 
Yeah, that's it's fascinating to hear about how blue carbon has kind of become such a hot topic in the last you know fifteen years. I think um, kind of in in my educational journey, it's kind of always been there. So so it's, sometimes it's really interesting just to hear about how new some of these ideas are, and maybe that helps you know explain why we're still trying to figure out maybe how to how to uh, value and you know determine how much carbon um, is in a wetland. Could you talk about what you think kind of the big barriers are towards kind of expanding protections for blue carbon ecosystems today? Sure. There are a lot of regulations and permitting processes in place already that protect coastal wetlands and for that matter, upland wetlands from development. But historically, we've already lost in the U.S., lost most of our coastal wetlands. These were not places that people could easily live or farm. And so we, but they they had access to the coast, right? These, these areas are often in very valuable places to live along protected bays where there were ample food sources and transportation and protected harbors. And so we have a history Um, among the European settlers that came to the East Coast of the U.S. of finding ways to alter these systems to make them more appealing, whether that be uh, filling them to build on top of them, draining them to make agricultural land, or hardening them so that we could make a port facility or something like that. We've damaged and destroyed a lot of our coastal wetlands already. So we we do have some regulations in place now to try and uh, slow that process. But the fact is these systems are still really undervalued and um, many people consider them unattractive, uh, not worthy of hanging on to. And so right off the bat, there's, um, there's a challenge there with how do we value these systems along the coast where there's already enormous development pressure. Our hope is that through um, sound policy and a recognition of the importance of these systems, the things, the services that they give us um, in terms of protection from flooding and from um, wave incoming wave energy that, as I said, can have tremendous erosive capacity. And as we see a changing storm regime, this is an even more important issue. This uh, ability to store carbon um, and, and mitigate some of the impacts of climate change. They're also incredibly important habitats as nurseries for different species that we value as recreational and commercial fisheries. They're beautiful from a recreational standpoint. So there's a lot of reasons to value these systems, not just the carbon sequestration aspect of it. Um, and the fact that we have so few of them left really, I think, makes it that much more important that we take care of them. Yeah, I really I really like your point about valuing kind of some of these coastal wetlands beyond just their um, carbon, you know, stocks and sequestration potential. I was just down on a marsh a few weeks ago in coastal South Carolina, and it's just a, a beautiful area with, you know, lots of, you know, amazing bird and invertebrate populations and just a beautiful um, place to be. Uh, you mentioned sound policy. Do you kind of, and I, and I know you said that there are a lot of kind of existing laws and regulations on the books to protect 
um, some of our kind of coastal blue carbon ecosystems. Uh, but it also seems like there's been a proliferation of kind of new bills and, and whatnot to protect these, these ecosystems. Um, what do you think the, the path forward is on that? We are trying to promote recognition of blue carbon in federal policy and to align all of the different agencies that are working in this space, right? So many, many different agencies have an aspect that touches on blue carbon. NOAA is the obvious one. That's the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm going to apologize if I get lost in alphabet soup here. Um, NOAA is the obvious one because they have so many direct links to management of the coastal zone. But uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service also owns an enormous amount of coastal property and has um, a strong mandate to manage it for the benefit of particular species in that area. So they are really a key player in this as well. Um, some of the best research that we have about these systems is coming out of the USGS, the Geologic Survey. Um, there's also a lot of cutting edge research coming in from satellite imagery. Um, and of course, that's coming in through NASA. So um, there are many different um, government agencies that have an angle in this. Um, and of course, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers does a lot of work in the coastal zone. And they have a wonderful program. It's I hesitate to say it's new, it's comparatively new, called Engineering with Nature. And they are really trying to improve their approaches to infrastructure in the coastal zone. Um, and I, I see a lot of potential there if we can start to impact how some of these decisions about infrastructure in the coastal zone, about how to site it and how to design it, to recognize the impacts that bridges and culverts and roads and other port facilities that are in the coastal zone, can they be designed in such a way to do a better job of managing these systems, of allowing tidal flushing, of, of minimizing the impacts that they have on the, the areas adjacent. Um, I think there's that that's a big opportunity that we see is to um, develop an interagency working group and to make sure that all of the different federal agencies that are working in this space are communicating with each other and building off of each other's expertise. So I think a lot of our students are, or a lot of our listeners are students um, and people who want to get into a living shoreline field. Could you talk a little bit about um, what you studied in college and what was your master's thesis? Um, I think that would help people try to get an understanding of how you got into Ray. Sure. I've been at Ray for about three and a half years. Um, if I dredge back to my school days, uh, I'm dating myself here. Those were years that began with 19. Um, I went to Wesleyan University, which is a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, and I studied earth and environmental sciences there. Um, so I got a, a pretty solid grounding in geology and in environmental science. Um, and I really appreciated the balance of those two things. Environmental sciences at that time were 
very, I think we're developing very compared to how they are now. Um, but having the geology aspect to the degree really grounded me in some very hard science. Um, I had a great experience there and an opportunity to take courses in a wide variety of, of different fields. I mean, philosophy of science and other things that um, a liberal arts education served me very well. Um, from there, I went on to uh, the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, which has now been renamed, I think it's just the Yale School of the Environment. Um, also a very broad program that served me really well. I had access to courses in uh, soils and economics, you know, natural resource economics and lots of different things that were sort of adjacent to my field of research, which was coastal and watershed management. And having, again, having access to that breadth of coursework and of people studying those things um, gave me a, a really solid grounding and a nice network when I entered the field to know people that were going in a lot of different directions. So that was a great experience. Um, my research topic there was really freshwater hydrology, actually. We were looking at a coastal watershed that drained through Connecticut and looking at how it responded to a winter storm from a hydrologic perspective, and then looking at water quality of the different tributaries and comparing that to land use in the watershed. Um, and those, these were in the heady early days of GIS, um, uh, which was just uh, a fascinating time to me getting some of those technical skills. Um, I went on from there into Peace Corps and took a position in coastal resource management in Saipan, which is three islands north of Guam out in the Pacific. Absolutely stunningly beautiful place and um, all kinds of different resources, uh, uh, different challenges that they were dealing with in the coastal resources office. In an island that is only three miles wide, everything is considered a coastal resource. So you're dealing with everything from solid waste management to road siting to agriculture and wetlands management because the entire island is coastal when you're, when you're that small. So that was a really, really fascinating experience. Um, from there, I decided to go back to school and uh, started pursuing a PhD in coastal geology. I became really interested in shoreline erosion patterns and how they impact management decisions. Um, and I spent a few years working towards a PhD and learned an enormous amount about both the, the technical sides of the equipment and methods used in coastal geologic research, but also realized I did not ultimately want to be an academic. Um, and so after um, completing all of my exams and everything else, I made the painful decision to leave the doctoral program, ABD, which is all but dissertation, and um, took a position doing international coastal resource management, international development. And um, I really love that work. Um, it was absolutely fascinating and, and working overseas was a really rewarding experience. Um, life took a couple of turns since then. I ended up taking a few years off when my kids were young. Um, and then about three and a half years ago, uh, I took this position at Restore America's Estuaries, where I've been for about three and a half years. And it has been a really wonderful fit. It's a small organization. We are small but mighty. Um, and that 
works really well for me. Some people really thrive in large organizations where they have a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity to move up and to move around in different fields. I have found that I really thrive in a small organization where um, I have a quite a bit of autonomy and quite a bit of latitude to take my programs in the direction that I want them to go. Um, and a lot of respect from the communities that we support. So uh, it's it's been an interesting career path from this, that to the other thing. I've moved around a lot. Um, and I think it's uh, it's given me a lot of wonderful opportunities, but I'm happy to say in the end, I have uh, found a real role for myself at this small NGO uh, based here in DC, but very close to, um, I guess, very close in one sense to the Washington DC uh, environment. Um, you know, we, we work with congressional offices, we work with federal agencies all the time, but we also have this very close relationship with the organizations that are working on the ground. The folks that are at, for example, the Coastal Fed or the Galveston Bay Foundation who are going to be co-hosting the Living Shorelines Workshop in October. Those are the folks that are working on the ground to restore their local systems. And I really value the connections I have with those folks as well. That's super encouraging, Hillary, and kudos to you for, you know, listening to yourself when it came to your PhD. I think that's a lesson that a lot of us young career professionals can learn from. Yeah, that was a very difficult decision. Um, it was not an easy one at all. In the end, I think it was for the best. Um, but those can be really challenging crossroads when you find yourself maybe having taken on something that isn't working out for whatever reason. And I know the um, the economy now and the workforce the, the, is very different from what it was when I was co straight coming out of school. And the expectations of how long someone might stay at a position or your ability to pick up and change fields entirely, um, people really need to be nimble, willing to learn things for a new position, for a new role, and to be adaptable. Well, thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us. Um, your wealth of knowledge and expertise about a variety of topics and, and hearing about your career has been so informative to us and I hope to our listeners too. Um, it's been a pleasure meeting you and I'm really excited to learn more about Ray. Oh, it's really been a pleasure. It's been wonderful to meet you all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Hillary, for joining us. This has been super informative and helpful to us, especially as future coastal managers. And we'll put links to the Ray website in the podcast description. And thanks to our listeners. Where, Where there's, there's a will, will there's, there's a wave. wave.